Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, with Ockmin, the meeting of the Australian and UK Defence and Foreign Affairs Ministers anticipated soon, Head of the ANU National Security College, Professor Rory Medcalf, and Royal United Services Institute Senior Research Fellow, Vila Nuens discuss how the two countries could increase the impact of their ongoing collaboration in the Indo-Pacific, exploring ideas drawn from their recent policy options paper, Australia and the United Kingdom, an Indo-Pacific security agenda for a revitalised partnership. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So welcome to the National Security Podcast for 2022, our, our very first episode. And this uh, this episode, we're going to be looking at the strategic relationship between Australia and the United Kingdom, a topic that until recently uh, wasn't particularly uh, pertinent, it seemed, in global or Indo-Pacific security affairs. But in the last year, in 2021, of course, particularly with the announcement of the AUKUS uh, submarine and other technology arrangement with Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom, and with Britain's so-called tilt to the Indo-Pacific uh, and the publication of its uh, integrated review, we've had some pretty significant uh, indications that Britain is taking the Indo-Pacific seriously, that the relationship between Canberra and London is suddenly becoming one of those partnerships to be studied uh, and to be encouraged in protecting Australia's security interests. So I'm really pleased to be joined today by a prominent voice in the strategic debate in the United Kingdom and indeed uh, across Europe. And that's uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Vila Nuens, who I've known for uh, many years and who is at the Royal United Services Institute, a senior research fellow in Asia Studies. We're going to be speaking not only about uh, AUKUS and the Australia-UK relationship, but what it means in the Indo-Pacific and what realistic expectations of that can be. And the timing of this is not coincidental, of course, because we anticipate that quite soon uh, it's likely Australian and British ministers will meet 
in the uh, the so-called Orkmin, uh Defence and Foreign Policy Ministers meeting, two plus two meeting. Vila, welcome to the National Security Podcast here at the National Security College. Thank you, Rory. Pleasure to be here. So I want to begin our conversation by noting also that, uh, you know, we we conducted or we convened a dialogue last year in 2021 uh, looking at the prospects for the Australia-UK strategic relationship in the Indo-Pacific. And we've been collaborating on a research paper, which a policy paper, which we look forward to publishing very soon. So the ideas we're going to discuss today are, I guess, a little bit pre-cooked, but I still want to make this uh, something of a, uh, a spontaneous conversation. I'd like to begin by hearing your take on What's Britain doing in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been uh, really a sea change, I think, in strategic focus for the UK. Um, This is not necessarily uh, simply limited to, I think, discussions and then the emerging integrated review that um, was released uh, last March, uh, March 2021. Um, But I think it's a greater signal of uh, focus towards the Indian Ocean region and the Pacific Ocean region uh, and all the littoral states in which the UK has allies and partners, um, where the UK really sees a need to be more present. I think there's been somewhat of a misunderstanding that this is simply because of Brexit, uh, that because the UK has left the European Union formally, that it therefore needs to all of a sudden have a a renewed approach to uh, the wider world under the banner of Global Britain. To a certain extent, that is, of course, true. Um, It is looking to formalize and to strengthen and deepen some of these relationships, uh, particularly in areas of trade. Um, But I think a lot has happened over the past few years. If we look at just Four or five years ago, the relationship with China, for example, was incredibly different. Um, you know, in 2015, we saw the era, uh, the golden era, so-called, uh, of relations between the UK uh, and China um, with a visit of President Xi Jinping, um, you know, where a lot was promised in terms of trade. We haven't necessarily seen that emerge. And in the meantime, of course, we've seen a very assertive China uh, come onto the global stage uh, in the Indo-Pacific region in particular, uh, which has, of course, spurred other partners like the US and Japan, and indeed also Australia, to recognize this as a strategic arena that is of direct importance to the UK for its national security. And I think with COVID, this has also uh, been really exemplified in the fact that supply chain security, uh, issues around new technology um, have all come to the fore as uh, ways in which I think countries are reimagining what national security really is that there is no real distinction between at home and abroad, uh, and that that line is becoming very blurred uh, indeed. And so what the UK has done is to really reassess uh, what its national security focus is, um, where its priorities lie, and how this also relates to the Indo-Pacific region. So in the Integrated Review for uh, Security, Defense, uh, Development, and Foreign Policy, which I mentioned earlier, which it released in uh, March last year, Uh, It noted specifically an Indo-Pacific tilt, uh, and it outlined a a broad framework. Um, An accompanying defense command paper was also released shortly afterwards in which it looked at some of the defense assets that the UK would uh, send or be able to deploy towards the region for a persistent presence. Um, These all, I think, are an indication that economically, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of UK national security, 
the Indo-Pacific region is really of prime importance to the UK. But there are, of course, challenges as well. And we can certainly go into that later, Rory, um, in terms of finances and budget, uh, particularly in a post-Brexit and post-COVID world or mid-COVID world as we are in right now. Uh, and then, of course, in terms of strategic priorities closer to home with Russia still being a real and acute threat to UK national security. Mid-COVID world, that's a disturbing phrase that I, I don't think I've heard before, but uh, it's, it's, it's kind of frighteningly obvious. Thanks for that. Can I um, ask a little bit more about the, the practicalities of this, this British engagement before I move on to uh, Australia's Indo-Pacific outlook and how these two might, um, might, might, might mesh? Uh, you know, you've mentioned, for example, that this isn't just rhetoric, this is about the defence footprint. Uh, for example, of, um, of of the UK armed forces, and so we've seen in 2021, you know, quite um, quite strikingly, uh, if I can say, the um, the deployment to this region of uh, a British carrier strike group, uh, you know, very substantial naval force uh, focused around, you know, one of the two uh, aircraft carriers, the two you know next generation aircraft carriers. In, in, in the Royal Navy, um, which I guess in some ways raises expectations about what the Royal Navy can and will do in the Indo-Pacific. Can you comment a little bit on, on, on that aspect? Sure. The Carry Strike Group was, I think, uh, a real flagship initiative and symbol of the UK's uh, foreign policy and footprint in the region. Um, it, of course, did not only have a defence element to it, but also uh, an economics and trade um, element to it, uh, and then also a diplomatic, symbolic, um, I think, aspect that showed to partners in the region that the UK could uh, be present globally. Um, and in that sense, uh, you know, we saw the Carrick Strike Group be not only just a national initiative uh, around uh, the Queen Elizabeth uh, carrier, but also with component parts of uh, the Netherlands, which sent along a frigate, um, and then also, of course, the United States. Uh, which sent um, F-35s, as well as additional vessels. Um, So I think for the UK, this was a major moment. Um, It showed that the UK is is serious and interested uh, in the region uh, and serious about being present. Um, But I think more than that, you know, the question is what comes next after this? So we've seen a very successful visit. Um, What can the UK do more? Uh, The Royal Navy, I think it's fair to say, is uh, stretched. Um, it will have a dip in, in hull numbers over the years uh, to come, whilst others uh, come online. Uh, when you bal- have to balance the need between being present in your own neighborhood and then being present further afield, which I think to, of course, taxpayers uh, can be a little confusing sometimes or not very well understood, um, that becomes both a political and an actual um, physical dilemma. Um, we see smaller initiatives, therefore, uh, being proposed and actually being lived up to. So the UK in the Defence Command paper, for example, mentioned that it would have two uh, OPVs, offshore patrol vessels, uh, in the Indo-Pacific over the next five years. Um, they won't have a, a home base necessarily, um, but the ambition there is to really have a cost-effective and flexible presence in the region, which is significant, to help with things like monitoring, surveillance, and capacity building of partners. Um, we see the proposal um, of the littoral response group South, which will be an amphibious um, element, 
uh, of the UK's presence or persistent presence in the region, uh, which will start in 2023. And then, of course, later in the decade, the Defence Command paper noted that it will uh, look towards Type 31 frigates uh, being in the region as well. But I think, you know, there will be naysayers that say that this is an insignificant uh, minor presence. And I think we have to be realistic in that sense that the UK won't be a leading player in the Indo-Pacific in a defense sense. You know, I think that is something that is still um, more uh, suitable and more appropriate for countries in the region itself um, that are there permanently with a larger uh, capability. Um, but the UK can play a really important diplomatic uh, and supporting role in defense. Uh, and I think that is what it's looking to do in a, looking to do in a more gradual and realistic uh, process over the next few years and indeed uh, through to the end of the decade. But I would say that there's also, of course, that diplomatic defense element as well with um, the, the establishment of a British defense staff in Canberra. Uh, which will support the one in Singapore that currently exists. So, you know, you'll see both that tactical and also a wider diplomatic uh, element uh, being formed. And this ties in in many ways with the the, the message or the, the vision of Britain as a, a global player, as a global power. And of, and of course, there's a post-Brexit context to that as well. We may, we may come back to that as, as, as we go. But I, I wanted to bring the Australian perspective in on the Indo-Pacific, because in many ways, uh, I believe the the British interest and British uh, in, enhanced engagement with this region is, is welcome in Canberra, and I think it's welcome in much of the region, even if there's a little bit of scepticism uh, as to how extensive it's going to be. From a uh, geopolitical perspective, I'd say that um, in many ways, uh, analysts and observers in the UK have become aware, sharply aware, in the past one or two years of trends that were noticed for a somewhat longer time here in Canberra and and in other parts of the Indo-Pacific. And that is the trend towards uh, Chinese coercion, the, the trend towards China being a source of risk as well as opportunity or indeed uh, a source of risk potentially outweighing the economic opportunities that China posed before. So, you know, I think the, uh, the, the British tilt is, is welcome. And it's, um, it's fascinating to see how much of the, the debate in the UK actually parallels, uh, although comes somewhat after the debate we've had in Australia, not only among um, security officials, uh, policymakers, but also in the in the political class. Indeed, some of the things we hear out of the British Parliament on um, China uh, can be a bit more robust than some of the messages uh, we hear from Australian parliamentarians, and that is and that is saying something because a lot of that that language uh, is quite firm. So the UK has, if you like, discovered or rediscovered the Indo-Pacific. Uh, there's also the uh, the European uh, shift or tilt to the Indo-Pacific, uh, France and other European powers, and that provides further context. And all of this is uh, a useful backdrop to understand when we look at what happened in 2021. Uh, the AUKUS announcement, uh, mid-September 2021, when the three prime ministers uh, stood together virtually to unveil uh, a uh, a real shift in 
policy towards direct cooperation on nuclear propulsion technology to support a future Australian submarine fleet and stepped up cooperation across the full spectrum of critical technologies, cyber, quantum, artificial intelligence and so forth, all with a very clear context of helping Australia to protect itself and to contribute to a balance of power that would prevent China from dominating the region. This uh, this stole the global headlines for a number of days and, of course, had all sorts of repercussions that we're still dealing with here in Australia in our relations with, with France and with Europe. But AUKUS, uh, in a positive sense, is uh, an affirmation of, of how close the Australia-UK relationship can be. So I think the question for us now is, having moved beyond a phase where I think both countries were taking one another for granted, and I think sometimes we, uh, Britain and Australia, have had a habit of uh, thinking they understood one another better than they actually did, suddenly we're moving into an era of, of great expectations, uh, trilaterally with the Americans, but also in the bilateral relationship. And that's where uh, whatever discussions are held this year between our officials and our ministers uh, are going to be, uh, I think, profoundly important for the future strategic orientations of both countries. So to produce the uh, the policy paper we've produced uh, and we're publishing shortly and to have convened the dialogue that we convened last year between non-government experts and government officials on, on both sides, uh, the timing in some ways couldn't have been more fortuitous. What do you think, Vila, about all of this and about not only AUKUS as a signal of how close the Australia-UK relationship can be, um, but also the other ways in which that relationship may evolve. It would be useful maybe to delve into some of the ideas that we um, pursue in our paper. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that that we highlight in, in the paper, which I think is a great basis, as well as the fact that um, you know, both the UK and Australia, one, have that longstanding uh, historical relationship, uh, a deep cultural understanding of one another. But I think also, uh, you know, the fact that they are two middle powers as well, um, I think puts them on uh, an, ex- an excellent footing to, to find ways in which to cooperate. I would say that one area that I think is particularly important uh, that, that we've explored is, of course, that element of science and technology, particular in outer space and cyberspace, um, looking at some of these uh, technological areas where uh, both countries have clearly seen the need um, to invest uh, both in their own uh, national capabilities, but also in uh, capacity building in other countries. I mean, if we look at cyberspace, for example, um, the fact that the UK has come out with uh, £22 million uh, for cyber capacity building, including in the Indo-Pacific, is an area where I think um, intention and ambition overlaps. Uh, The fact that, you know, these are areas in which norms uh, and conventions have not yet been established uh, I think also offers opportunities for the UK and Australia to really leverage those values um, that they share to present a, a more concerted effort 
um, for collaboration and cooperation in, in promoting the principles that they hold central uh, to how they view the international rules-based order. But Rory, I wondered what, uh, what element you think uh, particularly stood out as well as an area for cooperation for the two countries moving forward. So look, I'd, I'd begin that by saying that I think there's often been a a level of comfort between the two countries based on, I guess, you know, the intense trust that we have in the intelligence relationship and the long shared history, which which, which goes without saying, that has sometimes led us to be a little bit complacent in our ambitions for the relationship. And and I think that until recently, the, um, the fact that you know, as you say, five or six years ago, um, the United Kingdom was so focused on China as a source of economic opportunity. And, and from our perspective, certainly from my perspective, was not seeing the level of risk uh, coming out of China that, that Australian analysts were beginning to see. All of these factors led to a bit of, um, you know, uh, underestimation of what we could achieve together. So the landscape has shifted. And I think now we need to look really objectively at one another's uh, strengths and to look at that in an Indo-Pacific and a global framework, not only uh, limiting it to, for example, the the naval um, element, you know, the ships in the water, the um, the military power projection that Britain is capable of and, the, and its limits, but also looking at those areas you've identified, cyber, technology, uh, the protection of, of shared principles and values. I would actually place a very high emphasis on helping one another build capability and the role of people in all of that, because I think the human factor uh, is something that obviously binds Britain and Australia and, and, and frankly, a range of other like-minded countries as well. And what surprised me a little as we were uh, conducting our dialogue and researching our paper is, is that I think we're undercooking uh, the, the human factor. I think it should be it should be normal practice that the Australian and British governments have very uh, regular flows of secondes and exchanges between their bureaucracies, so that we can develop uh, at a day to day working level a shared awareness of each other's worldviews and sharing uh, capabilities and expertise. I think that building a common pool of expertise on critical technologies, so in other words, um, ensuring that we minimise the uh, you know the bureaucratic barriers to uh, research collaboration, to uh, visits, uh, visas, exchanges, and so forth, and that you know, we really begin to treat our security science and industrial bases as as broadly shared. I think there's a lot of promise there. I also would say that uh, Australia needs to look pretty um, open-mindedly at uh, Britain's engagement with the geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific. Britain is a substantial player in the Indian Ocean, less so in the Pacific. Uh, In fact, if you if you extend your definition of the Indo-Pacific to the Western Indian Ocean and the Gulf, uh, it's not as if Britain ever left. Um, And so I think we can find ways of leveraging Britain's footprint there, Australia's footprint uh, further further east, and begin to use the UK-Australia relationship as part of that wider web of uh, democratic partners, 
the United States, of course, but also Japan, India, uh, potentially France and other European powers, uh, and we'll come back to that later on, ensuring that our forces have ready access to one another's facilities and bases, ensuring there's as much real-time intelligence sharing, and I'm sure between Australia and the UK, that's one area where, where, where we do do well, but really stepping that up and bringing in third and fourth countries. So I do see a, a pretty healthy set of ambitions ahead, but uh, at each stage we have to, I think, guard against two uh, risks. One risk is that risk of heightened expectation, that risk that somehow having under-delivered to each other for so long, except perhaps in the um, the intelligence space, suddenly uh, our political leaderships in both countries are perhaps pinning a little bit too much hope and expectation on the, the bond between Canberra and London. And the second risk is about perception, and it's about that perception uh, that's already been uh, engendered uh, in various circles, that this is really just a revival of some uh, stale Anglosphere, some club of um, English-speaking uh, white people, and that this is, you know, out of step with an inclusive approach to international affairs or indeed the Asia-centric uh, concept of the Indo-Pacific. I think there are ways in which we can guard against both of those risks because I think particularly that Anglosphere perception is, is a bit misplaced, uh, but we have to be mindful of that. What are your views? No, I think uh, that is completely right, Rory. I would uh, agree with you that um, the Indian Ocean region is potentially a more natural uh, part of the Indo-Pacific for the UK uh, to really leverage its strengths, um, be that through the Commonwealth Network, be that through the, the defence facilities um, that it has dotted around the Indian Ocean region as well. Um, but I think also just its relationship with uh, the African littoral um, is something that Australia perhaps uh, can look towards uh, the UK for in terms of burden sharing. Um, you've mentioned that uh, the UK's presence in the South Pacific, for example, is uh, not as strong. Uh, and I think looking at this part of the world and, and seeing how the UK and Australia can best burden share is something that I think will help make sure that expectations remain uh, more realistic on on both parts, uh, whilst simultaneously strengthening that bilateral relationship. Um, I would also just, uh, in terms of perceptions, which I fully agree with, in terms of um, you know the 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 signal that some have interpreted uh, through AUKUS that um, the Indo-Pacific now is going to be um, dominated potentially by an exclusive clique of uh, Anglo-speaking Anglo countries um, is quite damaging and unhelpful. Um, and this is an area where I think the UK and Australia have quite a lot of homework to do um, to find ways to, to bring back um, some of their mutual partners um, into the discussion and, and to find concrete ways to really move that relationship forward and, and to bring them in rather than unintentionally promote uh, the perception that they're not welcome or, or that their role is, is being cast aside. And so I think when we look at um, ways in which countries other European countries, for example, or even Japan can work with the UK and Australia on um, horizon scanning in the Indo-Pacific, on how uh, they can work together on issues pertaining to supply chains or critical technology development, 
Um, you know, it wasn't too long ago that we were talking about things like the D10 uh, as an example of minilateralism. The, the D10 being the, the 10, 10 democracies, right? Exactly. Um, so the G7 plus three effectively. Um, but if we if we also, you know, broaden this out to other existing um, multilateral frameworks or organizations like NATO, um, where the UK, Australia and France, for example, and indeed Germany can really work together to deepen discussions and understanding on the Indo-Pacific and, and think more critically about what NATO means for Indo-Pacific security and vice versa the future. Those are, I think, all ways in which um, the UK and Australia can look towards those third parties and, and think more um, concretely about how to bring them in. We'll be right back after this break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. What I'm hearing is that sense that uh, while Australia and Britain together, Australia and the UK together. Uh, can have some real common strengths. I mean, let's face it, uh, the world's fifth and twelfth or fifth and thirteenth largest economies and, and, and defence budgets, that's two very substantial powers. Uh, at the same time, it's not going to be universally welcome if every initiative we undertake in the Indo-Pacific is, is you know, a united front of, um, of, of Britain, Australia and, and perhaps potentially other um you know, supposedly Anglo-Saxon democracies. And and I hear that, but I'd also note two things. One, I mean, one, just going to the very character of the two countries, uh, you know, these are actually two of the most multicultural countries in the world and they're, and they're, they're countries that define their national identity very much through um, values rather than than history. So, Values rather than history or or ethnicity. So I think that's a that's a positive message that needs to be reinforced at every turn. But also, uh, I think it, it it it's right to say that it would be counterproductive for every initiative that our countries undertake in the Indo Pacific. Um, that every initiative should be a joint initiative. There will be some areas where um, Australia is going to be better off uh, prioritising its relationships with, if you like, ge- geographically Indo-Pacific partners with, with, with Asian powers. There will be areas where each country will play to its strengths um, either alone or in other coalitions. But most interestingly for me, there are plenty of opportunities to coordinate with other groupings. And so, you know, we, we, we've, we've had some mention, I think, of the five-power defence arrangement uh, five power defence arrangements with uh, Malaysia and Singapore and New Zealand. There's also, I think, the exciting prospect of how we can coordinate uh, the Australia-UK relationship with the Quad, with the quadrilateral 
dialogue and all of the initiatives that the Quad has launched over the past 12 months. I mean, the the Quad summits, um, the Quad initiatives on uh, public health and vaccines, on climate and environment, on technologies, uh, norms and standards there. You know, there's an enormous amount of work uh, there that I think uh, Britain can very logically coordinate with. And last of all, perhaps picking partners, uh, nations like India, where Australia and Britain can coordinate some of their engagement. We can even look creatively, perhaps, at building new uh, minilateral arrangements uh, to to harness uh, convergent interests there. So, look, I think there are plenty of ways to uh, to manage those issues, but I think it is absolutely right to air publicly the um, the criticism that's been made of AUKUS and the UK-Australia relationship so that we can better air it. And on that note of managing uh, some of the risk or criticism, I would like to talk a little bit more about Europe. You've mentioned NATO already. Um, the uh, European Union itself has been, I think, uh, very proactive over the past year or so in uh, in promulgating its own Indo-Pacific uh strategy or essentially uh, blueprint, uh, and that was launched, uh, unfortunately, uh, from, I guess, our perspective at the same time as AUKUS, or in fact, I should put that uh, more appropriately, AUKUS was announced at the same time um, as the long-awaited EU um, strategy document. So we've now got some damage control almost a kind of family feud in the um, the family of democracies that want to protect their shared interests in the Indo-Pacific. And I think it's in Australia's and Britain's interests that we move as promptly and proactively as we can to ensure that, uh, that Australia and the UK engage with Europe, with France and other European powers as, as deeply and as often as possible as we move forward in the Indo-Pacific what do you see as the the opportunities and the risks there? I mean, I, I think, first of all, I completely agree that there is a need for um, the UK uh, and partners like Australia to work with uh, European countries and the EU alike in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, if you look at the EU and European strategy documents uh, or guidelines for the Indo-Pacific, depending on what country you look at, and then you look at our respective um, uh, objectives, and values that we seek to promote in the region, I mean, there is an immense amount of overlap. And so it would be a waste of resources and a waste of uh, a real opportunity if um, if we didn't all find ways to, to really collaborate. But of course, as you have said uh, and recognized already, um, there is some damage control to be done. Um, I think this is not just because of AUKUS. I think this is also, of course, because of Brexit to a certain extent. Um, and the UK is not necessarily looped in uh, with the European Union anymore in the foreign policy um, communities there, uh, at least at the EU level. So um, finding ways, firstly, to bridge that discussion uh, is needed. Um, and second of all, um, you know, there are areas like maritime security where the UK and the EU uh, alike uh, are looking to boost their uh, their participation and engagement in the Indo-Pacific. Um, the EU, for example, is looking to extend Cremario, which is a maritime domain awareness capacity building uh, project 
from uh, the Western Indian Ocean region towards Southeast Asia. Um, the UK similarly is looking uh, at ways in which it can uh, contribute to maritime security, capacity building, uh, international maritime law um, training. These are all areas where you know significant financial resources can be devoted, but would be far better if there were coordination in that respect. Um, similarly, if we look at some of the defense assets, um, you've already mentioned the need to uh, promote uh, and to enhance um, facility access arrangements uh, across partnerships. Um, if we look at the assets that the Europeans uh, you know, have in terms of France uh, deploying to the region, um, but then also the UK, there is rotational capacity there that could be explored. Um, and to bring Australia into that as well, I think, would enhance that persistent presence and continuous presence um, that like-minded countries are, are looking to uh, ensure in the region. So, um, you know, there's there's lots that can be done, um, but that political will definitely needs to be there. And I think for that to happen, um, some some uh, some real critical conversations need to be had uh, towards uh, rebuilding those relationships. Look, I would like to think that as AUKUS develops, and AUKUS will be on two tracks, of course, there's the uh, the track to develop uh, nuclear propulsion for Australian submarines, which is really an exclusively Australia-US-UK arrangement. But there's also the track for critical technology cooperation in all of these other areas, cyber, uh, AI, and so forth, that some initiatives under AUKUS can in fact be developed with fourth or fifth or more countries. And so I think it's conceivable, for example, that in future we could see an AUKUS AI or uh, cyber or quantum computing initiative where there is close research collaboration, trusted research collaboration with uh, European partners, whether it's specifically with France or with Germany or other e- other EU nations. Um, and I would like to think that that is a diplomatic uh, idea that uh, that our governments should pursue, should develop uh, in the months and years ahead. But there will be a lingering question of trust and there will be... I think, lingering questions of whether, in fact, um, Australia and the UK feel that they can achieve what they need to achieve in the Indo-Pacific without Europe. And the answer to that, uh, I believe, is is no. Look, one other question before we wrap up uh, is about the sustainability of all of this, the political sustainability. The... Um, the Australian, uh, UK and American leaders announced AUKUS last year. There's uh, no secret that there's a pretty close political bond between the current governments in London and Canberra, but of course there's an election in Australia uh, very soon and uh, the perpetual dynamism of democracy means that sooner or later um, the Australia-UK relationship and AUKUS more generally could well be in the hands of governments of, of different political persuasions, not the two conservative governments that, um, that drove this initially. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we can build that bipartisan league of um, champions for the relationship and that, that, that level of buy-in from 
elites, policymakers, uh, policy communities in both countries, so that this is not simply a, a short or medium-term uh, phenomena, that we really are reinvigorating the relationship for the 21st century. Yeah, I think that's a really um, incredibly important point, uh, Rory. I mean, I think when when you speak about building bipartisan level buy-in and when you speak about um, you know building that sustainability, you've already mentioned one really important point, which we address in the paper, which is that human aspect of it, that human capital aspect of it. Um, I think a, a lot of this comes down to uh, building greater awareness in the UK uh, on the Indo-Pacific. Now, if you look at the trajectory of public opinion, for example, on uh, China, that has drastically shifted. But if we ask that question about the Indo-Pacific, I'm not sure you'll get the same answer. And so um, looking at you know other political parties and their understanding of the Indo-Pacific, I think this is growing. Um, but having those conversations at the at the parliamentary level, uh, having those conversations in mixed working groups uh, and expert communities between uh, Australia and the UK to really uh, further cement that understanding of why the Indo-Pacific is important and more importantly also how it directly impacts national security and national prosperity is something that I think um, you know all sides of the political spectrum uh, will be able to agree with if that is an endeavor that's really pursued uh, quite strongly. That's a, um, a reasonably uh, confident and optimistic note for us to pause our conversation on. I think we've we've covered a lot of ground in this discussion. I don't think we have any illusions about the challenges ahead for the relationship, uh, the strategic partnership between the United Kingdom and Australia. Uh, it's not going to be, if you like, some kind of miracle solution to our strategic problems, but it's a really important pillar of that wider web of, uh, of democratic solidarity and of solidarity in favour of, of a rules-based order globally. So I'm, I'm happy to pause it there. Any, um, any last thoughts from you, Vila? I mean, just one more point, I think, on uh, this discussion around um, how Europe uh, and the UK and Australia can work together in the Indo-Pacific. I mean, you've mentioned um, the, the defence element of it, and we've discussed the foreign policy element of it more broadly. Um, but I think one thing that should really uh, be pursued by all sides is um, to not forget the importance of political signalling uh, on the international stage. Joint communiques, for example, on uh, areas of concern uh, and developments of real concern in the Indo-Pacific, uh, which we have seen uh, in the past, uh, in the past few years, particularly, for example, through the E3 uh, framework, uh, is something that does have impact and that does signal to both uh, adversaries and allies alike uh, that uh, Europe and its partners uh, are serious about this part of the world and are paying real attention. Um, so even if we can't necessarily find, um, you know, deep pockets um, for immediate uh, projects, then I think at the very least, diplomatic signaling is something that we shouldn't forget and should uh, continue to explore with Australia in the mix as well. And I think you're talking there about issues like uh, human rights, cyber attacks uh, and so forth when you're talking about issues where we can and should coordinate our diplomatic signalling better. Absolutely. And I would just note one last thought that um, we may come back to in a future podcast here at the college, and that is the 
the the role of intelligence cooperation. I mean, I think we uh, we began this conversation by noting that intelligence cooperation uh, bilaterally, but also under the uh, the Five Eyes arrangement, is one area where the UK Australia uh, strategic relationship has been incredibly uh, trusting and deep uh, for, for decades. That doesn't mean that we can't do more in the intelligence space. And so one area that we'll be exploring uh, in, in a future episode of the podcast is um, is the, uh, the future of the Five Eyes arrangement and whether, in fact, Australia and Britain can work to uh, extend that to additional countries or whether uh, we can add more than intelligence into the coordination among those five countries, Australia, the United States, the UK, Canada and New Zealand. Uh, and, of course, that in turn will raise new questions about the Anglosphere that I don't think we have time to deal with today. On that note, um, I think we should uh, conclude this discussion. Uh, Viola, thanks for cooperating with the National Security College, not only in our podcast today, but in that very fruitful uh, dialogue we convened under the Chatham House rule with um, experts from both countries last year and also in our forthcoming publication. Thanks for being a champion of the Indo-Pacific in the United Kingdom. Thanks, Rory. It was a real pleasure. Well, that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.